ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A quick warning, this episode contains strong language and swear words. Just imagine you're falling from 5,000 feet in the sky, going at 200 kilometres an hour. Instead of panic, dread and nausea, you feel free, at peace. A strong sense of pleasure as your body hurtles towards the ground. You're in the moment for sure. As crazy as everything, the noise, the speed, you're going, everything, it's just peace, it's just, just quiet. I'm Sana Kadar, and today on All in the Mind, we peek inside the brain of a high sensation seeker and find out why some people derive so much enjoyment from the same experiences others find terrifying. Whether it's men or women who are, who are in these high sensation-seeking experiences, the one thing I always ask them about is whether or not they have a death wish. And they all seem to answer it in the same way, and they say, well, no, I don't have a death wish, I have a, a, a life wish. But what happens when people can't satiate their thrill-seeking urges? And when does the pursuit of a thrill push the limits? It's like war. You go to war, you know, you, the, the bro next to you could be getting shot or dying. It's like you go base jumping, it could be your last jump. Today's story is from reporter Elsa Silverstein. Light cave, we're at 15,000 feet, three minute, one minute, open the door. A large piece of nylon fabric separates a skydiver from falling to their death. But before the parachute can be released, there is the free fall. That's when shit gets real. The wind, the noise. It's like driving down the highway, sticking your head out the window, you've got that, that blast of air. explain that rush, like stealing cars, breaking into houses, all the drugs I've taken, carrying on surfing and stuff, nothing could give me that feeling. Ten years before Marley Nolan Duncan skydived out of a plane for the very first time, he was speeding down a highway in a car he and a friend had stolen at three in the morning. He was 14 years old. We're going down a hill and he overtook the car on the other side of the road and then as he was going down the hill, another car come flying up and like literally swerved, just missed it. It's that rush, like fuck, you know, don't get caught. And just that adrenaline, it's pumping through your body. Marley has always liked going fast and pushing the limits. As a kid, I wanted to be an ambulance driver because it got to speed around. <laughs> He grew up in a town of about 7,000 people on Gomoroi land. Indigenous is on Dad's side, Gomoroi, out of our northwest New South Wales, Maury, and Mum's, Mum's a little white lady. Marley and his cousins often wandered around their community, looking for something to do. You know, just cruising around, riding their bikes, and just, yeah, wanted to go, you know, window shop, as they say. He was in primary school when he stole something for the first time and experienced that hit. I was actually in that Toys R Us. I used to love the Ninja Turtles back in the day. It was a little tub of goo and it had a turtle in it. And I was like, fuck, I want that. 
Yeah, definitely boredom, that, that rush as well, like that adrenaline when you got, you know, something down your dax and you're walking out and am I going to get caught or not? We're all ready to run or get chased. As a teenager, he moved to a housing commission that the locals called Darkside. And Marley's attraction to high-octane activity was ignited in more dangerous ways. We used to, you know, break into houses and stuff. That's definitely a rush. There's a few houses that got burnt down and are vacant. Obviously, people weren't living in it. Then you get the rush of it all and you start carrying on like a bloody pack of animals. There's always been this attraction for Marley towards things that would terrify others. So what makes him different? With high sensation seekers, you're experiencing a lot of pleasure, but not that much stress. That's Professor Ken Carter. I'm the Charles Howard Candler Professor of Psychology at Oxford College of Emory University, um, but you can call me Ken. Ken wrote a book called Buzz, Inside the Minds of Thrill Seekers, Daredevils and Adrenaline Junkies. He says the high sensation-seeking personality is something we should think about on a spectrum. So it's not a psychological condition at all. It's something that we all have. I think about it as a personality trait, kind of like introversion and extroversion. And like those other personality traits, you can be, you know, low at that or high at that. Understanding it, just like understanding what introversion and extroversion might be, can help explain why some people are drawn to certain kinds of experiences and some people sort of shy away from them. So there are four components of high sensation seeking. One of them is called thrill and adventure seeking. People that score high on this, like Marley, are drawn to dangerous activities. And then there's experience-seeking. And so this is sensations of the mind and of the senses. Tasting unusual foods or watching a psychological thriller. The first two components, that thrill and adventure-seeking and experience-seeking, can tell me, if I know those scores, the kinds of things you might be drawn to. But the last two things tell me how much trouble you might get yourself into with your sensation-seeking experiences. And these are one that's called disinhibition. If you score high on this... You're someone that leaps before they look, unrestrained. You're not checking the weather before you go out in a bikini. And then the last one is called boredom susceptibility. This is how easy it is for you to get bored and how irritated you get when you get bored. So who are the kinds of people who tend to be high sensation seekers? tend to be overrepresented. You find more of them than you might expect related to substance use, for example. Not any particular substances, but they just want a different experience of the world. But you also find them higher rates in terms of being politically active as well. And so there are some positive traits that, that are associated with them too. Well, some of the research I had looked at previously suggested that about 80% of it tends to be biological or can be genetic in some kind of way, but I think the environment plays a huge role. There's a process called the behavioural approach system, where your brain rewards some activities over others. Hey, there's a thing that's there that could be rewarding. Let me create some dopamine so that you are more likely to do that. Then we have the behavioral inhibition system that sort of does the opposite, that says, hey, that's something that looks kind of scary. You should avoid it. So there's a, there are sort of two sort of relatively opposite kinds of systems in our in our body, in our brain, that tell us that, that, that things could be potentially rewarding or that 
things could be potentially punishing or boring. And so those two systems are connected to that cortisol and dopamine as well. And that might explain why high sensation seekers have really, really active approach systems and relatively mild avoidance systems. There's a lot of literature correlating high sensation seeking personalities with antisocial behaviour and substance abuse. And Professor Ken says on top of boredom susceptibility and disinhibition, there's another element at play determining what kind of avenues you'll go down to seek new and intense experiences. When I talk to a lot of people that are high sensation seekers who also tend to get themselves into trouble, who don't have access to a lot of money, it's things that are relatively inexpensive that can create that sense of thrill but they can also be dangerous and they can also be illegal. We're out bombing a bridge, day blazing, and... Um, bombing a bridge? Uh, putting up a piece under a bridge, graffiti. About 10, 15 minutes later, seeing a couple of coppers walking up the train lines, and I said to me, bro, let's get it, let's cut, and basically just grabbed our shit and ran. The cops seen, they've gone back to the car, we've jumped the fence. We're, we're running hell for leather because <laughs> you know the cops and then you hear the cops zooming around and there's a few little alleyways and stuff where we could cut down and ended up down on the water's edge. Um, yeah, and then just sort of hiding out in the streets. When you add on that a layer of highly surveilled individuals, they are more likely to get themselves into trouble because they're focused on more and they may be incarcerated at higher rates. Fortunate enough, I've never been caught, but I have seen the consequences. Boys getting locked up and obviously got cousins in jail and stuff like that, so... Even though the same thing might be going on in the brain, the difference between high sensation seekers who get their kicks out of skiing compared to graffitiing a bridge is tied to class and race. What resources you have access to to chase that thrill? Growing up, Marley had been curious about skydiving, but it had always felt out of reach. So I remember seeing, you know, photos and stuff as a, as a kid and it was like, oh, it's sort of something I wanted to do. But as a kid, I always thought it was a rich man's sport. Back then, it was probably about $400 each to go skydiving. <laughs> you know, it's a long time ago. We weren't earning a lot of money. That's Linda Marie. She and Molly dated when they were in their mid-20s. They're still good mates. We met, he came for a job. I was working at Just Jeans and... He was, like, ridiculously good-looking, and I said to my big boss, I was like, I don't care if he ends up taking my job, I just, you just need to hire this guy. (laughs) (laughs) I was the manager of this Just Jeans. I need to have your number. (laughs) You're hired. Linda Marie recognised the thrill-seeker in Mali and bought him a birthday present that would change the course of his life. He had been pretty bad and drugs and alcohol and he pretty much was at the end of the line he's like he didn't know how much longer he was gonna last I guess so yeah I sold my car (laughs) so that we could both go skydiving I have done skydiving a couple of times and just think it's such an awesome (laughs) feeling and um I was like you need to do it I know he's got a a thrill-seeking addictive personality basically just no fear (laughs) <laughs> no fear of, of anything, really. In 2006, Molly jumped for the first time. And in the plane, when he was flying thousands and thousands of feet up into the air, 
he was shitting myself <laughs> but loved it like that yeah super nervous like fuck but like it's like let's do it let's go nothing can explain that rush like stealing cars breaking in the houses all the drugs i've taken carrying on surfing and stuff nothing could give me that feeling there's a photo of me looking down and like my face says it all i started going white <laughs> but i was just like it, it was it's a surreal feeling and then falling out i just remember that weightlessness for that first few seconds it's like oh shit we'd sort of done like a bit of a front flip and tapped me on the arms let go and just like fuck this is sick I remember looking up the coast the view the, and just feeling the wind flying you know what I mean yeah and then the parachute opens and then he handed me the toggles and let me have how to how to fly it's like holy I was just on this high that was fucking untouchable and then landed literally the first thing I said how do I fucking learn like teach me yeah he just became totally addicted I wanted to hit that that high again that chase that that buzz so what was happening in Marley's brain that made him feel so much pleasure on that jump? A lot of research into high sensation seekers these days use functional MRIs, which measure brain activity in real time. And since we know a little bit about what different parts of the brain do, when we know that there's a lot of activity in a certain part of the brain, we can figure out that that part of the brain is being used more so. So the amygdala, for example, is a part of the brain that's really implicated or responsible for a lot of our sort of fear and emotional processing. And so if you put someone in an MRI and you put them in a frightening situation, you'll see a lot of activity there. Uh, what we find is that people that are high sensation seekers don't experience the same kind of amygdala re reactivity than those that are, that are average or low sensation seekers. We've all experienced thrill before, plunging into a cold ocean or watching your favourite sports team kick a goal in that last quarter. There's some sort of risk, whether perceived or real, that your amygdala registers. And your brain responds by releasing dopamine, adrenaline, endorphins to protect your body from the risk. And that's why it feels good. So if your amygdala is less active, you're going to need a bigger stimulus to get that thrill. And this is all connected to the hormone levels in your body. Cortisol. It's responsible for, you know, your blood pressure going up, your heartbeat. And dopamine. The pleasure hormone. And so in high sensation seekers, their body produces a lot of dopamine in those seemingly dangerous situations, but it actually doesn't produce that much cortisol. And so you're, with high sensation seekers, you're experiencing a lot of pleasure, but not that much stress. After Molly's first skydive, he was hooked. He immediately sold his motorbike to enrol in a course and learn to dive solo. And a few years later, he was taking part in the edgiest corners of an already extreme sport. A few people saying, like, you're good at what you do, but keep be sensible. I was still a bit loose, doing, doing some crazy shit and dangerous shit within skydiving. Like, what were you doing? So we call it uh, swooping, and you basically generate turns and speed diving at the ground, pull it out before you hit the ground, and you fly your parachute along. 
But um, yeah, you, you're flying at the ground like 100 k's and then flying across the ground at, you know, 80, 90, 90 k's. So, and you're inches off the ground. Marley got so into this faster, riskier, swooping type of skydiving, he became the first Indigenous person to make the Australian canopy piloting team. Whether it's men or women who are, who are in these high sensation-seeking experiences, the one thing I always ask them about is whether or not they have a death wish. And they all seem to answer it in the same way. And they say, well, no, I don't have a death wish. I have a, a, a life wish. And so it's not the fear that they're after. It's the experience that they're, that they're trying to, to achieve. So you, you dirt dive it, you jump it, you pull it off. And then, yeah, when you're landing, you're buzzing. Everyone's like, you're just on a high. You smile in the ear to ear and high-fiving each other. And yeah, it's, it's a cool feeling. Ken says high sensation seekers may put themselves in riskier situations, but they hold a superpower in maintaining control when disaster strikes. And there are certain situations where you're going to want to be able to have someone to save you if you're in a dangerous or unpredictable situation. I.e. when the plane malfunctions, you want the pilot to be cool and calm and figure it out. If you're not experiencing that at much cortisol, you're going to be calm in those situations and you're going to know what to do. And high sensation seekers trust their body, they trust themselves to sort of figure it out. That's something that resonates with Molly. I've had near misses like other people in the sky and definitely have to keep calm. Yeah, even though you're diving at the ground, it's just that peace, you're in that moment, you're focused, you're just, yeah, flying across the ground. But I also had trust, like I knew my body and I knew I could do it and yeah, and obviously that, that risk-reward was always there. I do feel the Indigenous side as well, a bit more coordinated, and I guess it goes back, you know, you know, back in the, the ancestors, you know, where we're in tune with the earth, we're in tune with our body. Marley describes finding skydiving and making it such a big part of his life and career as something of a saviour. After he started getting into it, the crime and the drugs that were dominating his life sort of fell away. Stopped me partying and, you know, having fucking big benders and whatnot. So, yeah, it definitely got me on the straight and narrow that way. Like, oh, yeah, what do you think would have happened if you hadn't found skydiving? Like, what was at stake for you? Uh, I, always, I, I probably would have been dead or in jail. So Really? That was my choice, yeah. Skydiving's the one job where it's, I've stuck with and I've woke up every morning going, fuck yeah, can't wait to go to work. Marley's insatiable appetite for thrill eventually led him to the world's most dangerous sport. Uh, Sort of explain to waffos, like non-skydivers. You just heard Marley use the word waffos? That's what skydivers call us non-skydivers. Mere mortal, feet-on-the-ground people. Like wizards describing muggles. Sort of explain to waffos. Imagine the 15,000 foot of adrenaline compressed into 300 foot of adrenaline. Base jumping is jumping from fixed objects, like cliffs or buildings far closer to the ground than a plane, so you only have seconds to open your parachute or wingsuit. It's illegal in Australia because there's so little room for error. It's about 40 times as dangerous as skydiving. So Marley went to New Zealand to learn from Alan McCandlish, a base jumping mentor. He calls him Alba. Yeah, I was, I was definitely excited. Like I was like, yeah, it's happening, it's real. I was off a cliff, a cliff that was 360 feet. And then because Alba, the the mentor, he knew sort of my ability. He goes, first, I'll well, get you off handheld. So the little pilot chute that opens our big parachute, I was holding in my hand. Normally they go static, so you tie your little pilot chute off to something or 
he holds it, but he goes, I know you're switched on. There's a handful of boys over there that were, yeah, pretty respected in the sport and he, he pushed the limits. You know, base jumping is famous for being one of the most dangerous sports in the world. Not a lot of old base jumpers. <laughs> exactly. You're yeah. you in the sport long enough, you're going to know people who die doing it. Yeah, that's exactly. The, my mentor actually went in in Europe wingsuiting. <laughs> so and died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Passed over there. But yeah, even skydiving, you stay in the sport long enough, going to get into base jumping, you. It happens. Was that a big deal for you? Were you guys yeah, it was, it was pretty shit. Like, obviously losing a mate and mentor and the, the fellow I, you know, go on base missions with. Um, but that's a sport. You get into it, you, you know what you're in for. It's like what they say, it's like war. You go to war, you know you, the, the bro next to you could be getting shot or dying. It's like you go base jumping, it could be your last jump or it could be their last jump. We all take part in risky behaviour. Going on a road trip is inextricable from the risk of dying in a car accident. And our brains are calculating a risk-reward equation with every decision we make. But Professor Ken Carter says high-sensation seekers are dealing with different inputs in that calculation. I talked to one guy, his name is Will Gadd. He's the first person to, to climb up Niagara Falls and when it was frozen. And he said, if it was just adrenaline I was after, I would just run back and forth you know, in traffic, but it's not. It's what is the experience that I want of climbing up an, a, a, you know, a frozen waterfall or slacklining or base jumping. You can only get those things by, by being involved in them. And it takes, it, it, there's a risk there, but for them, the risk is worth the reward. That's what's amazing to me, especially in base jumping, is that the risk is so high. And so the fact that the reward is so great that it would be worth that is hard for me to get my head around. Yeah, and I think the piece of it that's, that's the hardest for me is that I, and I have to realize that my body is screaming at me that this is too dangerous to do and that I shouldn't do it. My behavioral inhibition system is overriding that approach system and I don't do it. But if you have a, a behavioral inhibition system that says to you, it's not that dangerous. You know, my body is not, not reacting that it's a dangerous thing, but my, I've got tons of potential dopamine that I could experience. Their body is going to signal different things to them about how dangerous it is, you know? And so I think part of it is cognitively knowing that it's dangerous, but also physically feeling that fear and danger. And if you're a high sensation seeker, your experience of the world is just very different. While Marley's sensation seeking escalated over time, from trying riskier moves in skydiving to base jumping off cliffs in New Zealand, Ken says that's not always how it plays out. And interesting, if you look over the lifespan, um, sensation-seeking tends to peak in early adolescence. That's why if you watch YouTube and you see a lot of people who are doing those kinds of things, they tend to be, you know, adolescents, um, mostly men, but women too. Um, and then over time, there are two different factors, or there are a couple different factors that change your sensation-seeking personality as you get older. One is um, the, the, those chemicals tend to change and decrease over time. And so people that are really high sensation seekers when they're teenagers tend to be um, a little bit closer to average or a, a little bit lower as they get older. 
But the other piece is something that um, in my book I call uh, anchors. There are sort of social anchors that change over time. Maybe they're family or relationship or kids that will pull you back from doing certain kinds of things because they are telling you that it's too dangerous and you should sort of pull back on some of that stuff. So I think because of the, some of the social factors and some of the biological factors that it's not necessarily going to, they're not going to do more and more risky things as they move through their life. There are consequences for high sensation seekers when their gateway to sensation seeking closes. Last year, Molly had completed a near-perfect skydive, but he misjudged the landing and broke his leg badly. It was his first injury in 14 years of skydiving and base jumping, and all of a sudden, the chase and the thrill ground to a halt. When I broke my leg, obviously I wasn't jumping. I think me not jumping as well, that was a big thing because I've done it most of my life. And um, that's where I started abusing. I guess I went back to chasing that, that high, that feeling. And Yeah, I think the drugs I was on with my leg and then started smoking yandy again and just drinking way too much grog. And it just got worse and worse and worse and to the point where I checked in at a mental health unit. Imagine knowing that there's something that brings you that sense of awe, that 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 piece of uh, excitement, that but you're not allowed to do that, you know. And so I I can understand how that might be linked to depression or stress or uh, finding some other way to to feel that dopamine. A lot of you know uh, substances re- help release dopamine in the body as well. And so what I do for, what I suggest for a lot of those people who are in a situation where they can't do those thrill and adventure-seeking things, to try some experience-seeking, for example. Maybe it's adventure travel or other. Try to tap into the another piece of your um, thrill-seeking personality that can help provide that sense of awe for you. There are many factors outside of a personality trait like high sensation-seeking that have contributed to Mali's mental health. But he's out of that dark place now, on the mend physically and mentally. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. It's, it's something I feel it's going to be for the rest of my life, and it's just about being in control of me and dealing with it. Marley's favourite part of skydiving is when he jumps with a 550-square-metre Aboriginal flag that flies like a kite attached to him as he parachutes through the air. He lands in communities talking to local kids about what he's done and what he's been through. But yeah, that was probably the proudest moment. You know, I've had the, had the Aboriginal flag on my belly, all wrapped up, and and all the family there, and all the little kids screaming, like running around, going mad. He remembers this one jump, where he felt the presence of his late father as he flew over the clouds above the land of his ancestors. Got got a bit teary eyed, having a yarn with dad and just all the ones that have passed, and saying it's for you guys, and yeah. Recently. Marley started taking young people out on bush trips in Gomorrah country. He's introducing them to skydiving through a program he created called Flyabout. The blackfellas go walkabout and blackfella go and flyabout. In Marley's dreams for the future, he builds a rehab centre that's like a theme park for kids like him, kids who are chasing that high. It's got like a... Airport, like the drop zone, it's got like a wave pool, skate park. Got, you still, you know, wake up, have breakfast together, 
learn about the culture. I find you need to take them out in that out of their environment and there's nothing better dealing with people that have dealt with it firsthand, not someone out of university or something that's fucking, you know, white collar sitting there. People that have dealt with it firsthand for sure, speak to them and there's more to life than drugs and alcohol and crime and that, that feeling kind of stuff. It's a rush but it's in a negative way but the adrenaline sports, you know, surfing, skating, skydiving, it's a positive rush. <laughs> uh, give me a hug. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well done, mate. That is skydiver Marley Nolan Duncan. You also heard briefly from his former girlfriend, Linda Marie Sagas, as well as Dr. Ken Carter, professor of psychology at Oxford College of Emory University. This episode was reported and produced by Elsa Silberstein. Thanks also to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer John Jacobs. That's it for All in the Mind this week. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.